Hi, I'm Spencer, and I beat the often path by leaving school to start a company to, to solve the housing crisis. So we build um, small backyard houses uh, across California that people can rent out to make extra money. And we have a factory that's super efficient and is increasingly using a lot of robots to do that. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual, inventive, and different kinds of success stories to help us radically rethink what success means and to help us figure out how we can build a personal career while helping the planet in the process, creating win-wins. Well, I'm very excited to present today's guest. Spencer Burley is the founder and president of Rent the Backyard, a Y Combinator-backed startup that's aiming to solve the housing crisis in the Bay Area and beyond. His innovative approach involves building prefabricated ADUs, or additional dwelling units, into the backyard of people who already have a backyard but don't know what to do with the space. The result is affordable housing for people living in the ADU in the backyard, greater population density and less wasted space, and of course, extra income for the homeowners who are renting out their space. It's really a cool win-win-win that's taking off and it just might be coming to an area near you soon. So let's learn how this man saw a big problem and came up with an innovative solution, getting the attention of Silicon Valley's top brass in the process. Here's Spencer Burley of Rent the Backyard. Ooh, so we're going to cover a bunch of things. We're going to get into AI and automation and all of this fun stuff. This is great. Uh, Well, first of all, Spencer, thank you for joining me. Welcome to the show. I'm very glad to have you here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I'm very curious about what it is that you are working on. So I found your website and it seemed very fascinating what you're up to. So yeah, tell everybody a little bit about like what's your mission, what's your project? What did you leave school to do? Yeah, so what we do is we make it really easy for folks in California, specifically the Bay Area, to um, build a little house in their backyard that they can use to like rent out and make extra money. Uh, so what this does is it helps like more people have a place to live and it helps people who have been in their home for a long time or people that own investment properties to um, live a little bit more of a financially comfortable life. Okay, so this was a huge mistake on my part and I'll tell you why. I shouldn't have done this episode because I am renting here. <laughs> <laughs> and I am currently recording this in a garage room, in a garage adjacent room that if my landlord were more clever, that he would turn into an ADU, <laughs> robbing me of my extra valuable space. So I have a vested interest in this not happening in my specific situation as I'm not the property owner. So, well, <laughs> so we actually, we only do access, we use accessory units. So we build you a whole new house, like in your backyard. Uh, we right. don't do garage conversions, but uh, yeah, your landlord under the same laws could convert his garage into a livable space, but maybe your rent would go down. So yeah, I, you know what? I just, let's just pray. He doesn't listen to this show. He won't, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a fascinating concept. So housing crisis, that's the thing that's been tossed around a lot in the last few years. And anybody who's lived in California knows, especially the Bay area, but also Los Angeles, how crazy things have gotten. The concept of the starter home is out the window. Many people can't afford housing in general. So describe a little bit about the problem and how did you become aware of this problem in your own life? Yeah. So I've always really been a big urban planning nerd. So thinking about like the the built environment and like how we can build like cities for, for people, not for cars and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I grew up in New Hampshire where, where housing was quite affordable and there are starter homes and things like that. And I went to school in Pittsburgh where uh, I had friends that would graduate college and go and they'd actually purchase a house. 
but increasingly, as I got more into the technology world, like I'm an engineer by training, I was out in the Bay Area and just like thinking about how much different it was for people and just seeing all of my friends kind of doing the same thing, like really wanting to come to the the, the mecca of, of the technology universe and just not be like being very concerned about being able to actually like make rent. Uh, yeah. even on those like really high starter salaries that, that people in the technology industry get. So like if it's tough for, for techies to do it, like what about teachers and firemen and other people like that? Yeah. And, and for a little bit of context here, do you happen to know some stats? Like what is the average rent these days in your area for a two bedroom or a one bedroom? Do you know a little bit about that? I think that? the average, yeah, the average one bedroom in uh, the city of San Jose, which is kind of like Silicon Valley area, I think it's about 2,200 bucks a month. Uh, so just extremely unaffordable. Right. And if you want something decent, forget about it. Like, what would it be to have a, a, a freestanding house with a yard? Like five, six? Uh, I, I know in, in counties um, like Santa Clara, uh, the average home price is like getting getting to or past a million dollars. Oh, my God. And that's yeah, just that's your standard. average home price. And all those yeah. homes, too, are built in like the 50s or 60s. Like, they're not necessarily like brand spanking new like all ready for you to like move into like a lot of them need a lot of renovation and, mm -hmm. and other things like that do you think it's worth it as an aside to spend a million dollars for a home like that if you had the money do you think it's worth it or no um i think that like when you have a family and like you have kids like the kids want like it's good the kids really like consistency yeah <laughs> and uh if you like own a home, you can provide that consistency. So I, I really understand why a lot of people want to do it, but like, I don't know if you should throw 90% of your net worth or something, or like call it 200% of your net worth. If you're, sure. if you're paying a mortgage into, into a home uh, that like fluctuates a lot around the Bay area's like housing market. That's true. So what, what brought you to that area then you were in school at the time. What brought you, mm -hmm. did you go there for school? Uh, no, so I went to, to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, but okay. uh, I was studying like computer science and statistics. Yeah. Right. Uh, and just like th that's where the jobs were. Mm -hmm. So, like, I was always excited about the technology industry. And, like, um, when I started to go there for, for visits and for summers, I, I was just struck by like how big of a difference there was between the cost of living in Pittsburgh, where I went to college, which is a super affordable city, and the cost of living in Silicon Valley. And I was kind of struck, uh, stuck between this divide of like, well, I can go to the Valley and I can probably make a lot more money, but like if housing costs, like make me like not able to actually like build a life there because I, I don't really have much opportunity to purchase a home, then like, what should I do? And I, I think a lot of people are having this issue and like people talk a lot about like, oh, like, are people going to leave Silicon Valley? Like, is it going to continue to be like the technology hub of the world? And like, um, I'm not quite sure what the answer is, but if housing stays the way it is, it, it sure won't be. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who are, there are a lot of states that are trying to pull you in as well. Like I see billboards for Ohio. That's like, start your business <laughs> in Ohio. There's program, you know, Tulsa is doing a Tulsa remote in Oklahoma. There are all these programs that are trying to get, I think there are various Southern states as well, trying to get all these remote workers in with grants and stipends and all of that. So that is a very, it's a defining issue of our time in many ways. Um, so I'm always fascinated when people decide to drop out to pursue it. Why did you drop out of school to build a company? Yeah, so it was a couple of different things. Uh, the first was uh, like all of the things pushing me towards doing it, where um, we had uh, like 
California passed all these different laws that make it really easy to build like a house in your backyard. And I was like tracking those really closely um, because I like the idea of like adding density and also like kind of keeping money in a community or like if you're a homeowner who's been around for 20 or 30 years, if you build one of these things and you rent it out, like that money is going into your pocket that you're spending at like the local grocery store and stuff like that, rather than just going to like a, a property, like um, developer, like fund or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh so I really had like that also from the environmental perspective of like people can live closer together. It's easy to add sort of transit options because there's more people in one area. Um, but like the numbers that uh, people are actually building these things weren't that high. Uh, and I, I thought there was a really good opportunity to go and like, I thought the numbers one should be a lot higher. And two, I thought there was an opportunity to increase those numbers. Uh, and I'd spent a little bit of time in like FinTech land and like thinking about finance and uh, like, uh, financing was really the thing that had made uh, solar big. And uh, I, I thought I could also make them really big for backyard houses. So that's really, really got me into like thinking about the industry. Interesting. So laws changed, you're tracking it, and you've seen this business model. So what what was the first business model idea then that you came up with? Yeah, so the very first business model was one where we'd like pay for the house up front and then kind of let people like split the rental income with them. Uh, so that's a lot more reminiscent of that sort of type of thing you'd see in so- the solar industry where like you can get a panel on your roof for free and you just pay the company uh, every month as your utility. Uh, we kind of moved away from that pretty fast, though, because we realized that uh, the big problem in this industry isn't necessarily the financing the way it was in solar, but it's just having like a really reliable and really affordable provider of these backyard homes. Mm-hmm. And like uh, unlike solar panels that are kind of a commodity uh, right now, backyard homes are built by like any of a thousand or 2000 different general contractors who each do maybe one to five projects a year. And they aren't able to really get any of those like advantages of scale that you would get from like building a hundred or a thousand of these at a time. Uh, so now our company is focused on building uh, first 180 years a year, um, probably by the end of this or next year. And then eventually um, a thousand ADUs every single year and a purpose-built factory we have uh, to, to just ship them out and, and make, housing more affordable, give people a a better place to live, and help people make some money too. All right, folks, we're going to stop the action here for just a quick split, split, split second. And I'm going to ask you, if you enjoy this show, have you subscribed to it? Have you rated the show five stars? Have you found more unusual success stories for inspiration by finding Ross Palmer on YouTube and hitting that subscribe and that bell? There's lots of good to be found in these stories, and I seek out and share them for your benefit so you can get a greater sense of what people have done with their own lives. So again, you can help the show grow by sharing an episode by rating the show five stars and spreading the word. I would really appreciate it. Now back to the show. So when you had this idea, how did you get it off the ground? Or what were the first steps you took from saying, I have an idea, I want to make this thing. What did you do day one? Yeah, so a lot of it actually started on the policy side. So trying to understand like what the laws actually were and how standardized things could actually be. Um, because I think that's the thing that's really limited um, construction type like innovation in the past, where like every single city has a different different types of zones and different building codes and it's super inconsistent. So it's hard to actually go in and like create a company that can like, there aren't actually, um, there aren't actually like benefits of scale most of the time. 
But since the state passed some laws that created like a special legal framework that applies like that's consistent across the entire state of California, there started to be in this environment. So what we did was we went and we got into the laws and like actually figured out like what what is allowed, like how many backyards could this actually service? So it was a lot of just market qualification and understanding like what's possible here. Mm -hmm. Uh, From there, it was um, it was just reading a lot of books, actually. And I'd spent some time volunteering with like Habitat for Humanity. I think moderately a good understanding of how houses were built. Uh, and house building is not very pretty right now. So right. the idea is when you go to build a wall, you're taking like basically like things of lumber and you got like a floor plate and a, a roof plate. And then like every call it eight to 12 inches, you're putting like another piece of lumber that goes vertically. And so that's all super manual, uh, right? You have people that go in and actually like measure every single one of those cuts, uh, manually nailing that maybe with a drill, but like often with like a nail gun. And then you actually take that whole wall frame, you'll put it up. Then you got to attach like plywood to the side. You got to slap some kind of drywall on top of it. And it's just all like incredibly manual. Uh, so the first things that we were thinking about was like, how many of these steps can we like transition away from people and replace with components? Uh, so this is something the auto industry has done really, really well, where like they're able to go and actually like have someone else build like the windscreen or the motor, or you can have like a robot that actually does the welding. Uh, so we wanted to follow a lot of that same approach. And we came up with a couple of uh, of really great ways to actually cut up about half of the building process right off the bat. Uh, so from kind of my architectural and interest and experience, we'd heard about this material called cross-laminated timber, which is basically a really fancy type of engineered lumber uh, where you have boards that go like horizontally and then vertical ones in the middle. And you take it and you, you slap it together and you glue it and you put it under pressure and you're able to get this really, really consistent material that you can then basically go and like take a robot and like cut out doors and windows and even electrical outlets. Wow. Uh, so the, the basis of our whole building, and I'll send you some pictures is yes. that we'll put them just up 12 the big, yeah, it's 12 big panels of wood uh, that just sort of come together like a, a fancy box. Uh, oh. And then what we do is, yeah, go ahead. And that, and that is, in so doing, you create a one bedroom with a bath, uh, right? One bed, one bath with a kitchen. And are there rooms in this? Is or is it? Or you said what? Like two rooms, a main room, and a bedroom, or three rooms, a main yeah. room. Yeah. So there's a bedroom, and then there's a. We'll, we'll toss some pictures up on on the yeah. screen too. But uh, there's also like a living area that combines with the kitchen and a separate bathroom. Uh, and there's even like a little hallway and even like a little room for uh, a washer dryer. So it's basically like a 35 foot long, 12 foot wide box that we protect on the outside and make really pretty on the inside. And and how, what's the square footage on the inside? It's 418 square feet. Okay. So for anybody who's listening, you can model this perfectly. Just go to your local Ikea. I'm sure they have that room on display, right? You know <laughs> yes, what I'm talking yes, about? Yes. <laughs> They've got that room. This is part of our product do. research, actually. Interesting. Okay. Um, where like we were thinking about like we were trying to figure out like what size of house do we want to build and we were working with these really great architects and they were pushing us to like um like go pretty small like around this size or like you hear four four eighteen and you think it's not that big but yeah part of their advice was like go to IKEA and walk around some of the exhibits and see how much you can fit into a, a space that's like really well optimized uh, so they sold us on it and we're, we're super happy because we can you can fit a lot in four hundred eighteen square feet yeah. You can, and that's hilarious that that. But it it does make sense because they do a great job with it. So this would represent a more affordable way for somebody who needs to or wants to be in the Bay Area or just anywhere. They can get a cheaper place, live modestly, 
as they work their way up the ladder until they can move out, right? It's a it's a good is do you think it represents a sort of new option for people that wasn't there? Like I just moved to Silicon Valley and this represents an alternative to what's there? I think it's definitely a type of like what I call minimum viable housing where like it's it's on the small end of like what what's actually kind of real and and you can still be comfortable in. Right. Uh a lot of people actually end up choosing these over something like a, a one bedroom apartment in just a standard like apartment building uh, because they do like that, like kind of community feel of, of being like in a neighborhood compared to, to being in some sort of like tower or something like that. So, And you don't have neighbors above you, like in an apartment or below, you're not sharing a wall, right? It's a freestanding thing in a yard or what was once mm-hmm. a yard. Yeah. So that's, that's really cool. So obviously research is done. You've, you've, put it all together and you think, okay, we're onto something here. This is clearly an idea that needs funding, in my opinion, right? So mm-hmm. how how did you start approaching that part of it? Yeah, so that, that's definitely a really important part of the business. Um, we started looking at like different startup programs that existed to kind of um, help us with this aspect of the business. So we ended up applying to um, Y Combinator, which is one of like, the better known ones. They've backed companies like Airbnb and DoorDash. Uh, and we were fortunate enough to get accepted. So they helped give us like a little bit of a curriculum to actually go and like um, kind of both get the business moving with a little bit of cash and move towards um, raising a little bit more substantial um, cash to actually go and uh, like open up a factory and, and start scaling. That's fantastic. First of all, congratulations on that. Yeah, Y Combinator is very oh, elite can... for people who aren't familiar with it. Um, so what what year was it that you entered into Y Combinator? Uh, we took part in their summer 2019 batch, okay, so, so um, about uh, two and a half years ago now. So brand new. Well, what I really loved about this idea, versus, you know, this is always being discussed here in Los Angeles and also ways to deal with the homeless problem that we have. And I like your idea a lot because a lot of the other ways that are discussed involve taking things away from public space. Like one of the things that they wanted to do here was to get people away from, uh, to, to close down municipal golf courses and put housing up and Mm -hmm. things like that. And I hate the idea of removing parks for housing, especially in these urban areas where patches of green are so valuable and an escape. So it's great that you've, you know, chosen to find a way that was already there. It seems like a win-win to me. Yeah, that's the whole idea. Um, and like, I think you can add a lot of density while not actually like increasing the Im- the impact in the sense that like, if you add a hundred of these uh, around like a, a local community, uh, they're all really distributed. So like, you're not actually going to see much of an impact on on-street parking or traffic. And there've been a lot of studies that say you could add hundreds of thousands of these things before that would actually happen compared to maybe building an apartment building that has a hundred units. Uh, and you may feel that impact a little bit more. Yeah, that's definitely the approach that they take around here. They they build up, I've noticed. You know, they'll take a lot, they'll demolish it. And then you end up with these very rigid, straight, vertical kind of buildings everywhere. I don't know how it is over there, but they're pretty mm-hmm. ugly. It's definitely not the same feeling that you would get uh, from a neighborhood. And like you said, that's a really nice feeling, you know, if, if it's safe or they, they can be on the street and their kids are there or something like that. So it's mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty great. Um, so relatively new, what are what are some of the challenges that you've faced in the first couple of years of doing this? Has it been relatively smooth sailing or constant battle? It's a little bit of both. We're always surprised by like what stuff is um, easy and what stuff is hard. 
So like anything in the physical environment, I think like generally will take twice as long as you expect it to. So just like seeing things move and like working with uh, vendors and like setting up those relationships has been remarkably hard. Like even when you want to pay them lots of money, like sometimes they don't seem like they want to work with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just spending more time on on that part of the business relative to what we thought it would be. Other parts of the business, like um, hiring, I think has generally felt pretty easy. I think people are usually pretty attracted to our mission. Like we're trying to do this pretty bold thing and it's going to be really hard, but that gets people pretty excited because I think just everyone in the Bay Area understands how expensive uh, this is and and people want to be able to have that impact that uh, they think our company can help them do. Yeah, it hits close to home for everybody. Uh, and you have a one co-founder? I do, yes. Okay. We met in college. Yep. Uh, we actually ran a couple of businesses together there. Uh, so the biggest one was uh, basically like a, a food delivery sort of service uh, where we'd have like members that would join like our meal plan and we'd like cater them lunch every single day. Uh, and so that, that grew to be pretty big and we liked, uh, working together a lot, but we didn't like the food business as much. Uh, and we were serving a lot of like fraternity brother customers. Mm. Uh, so the, the customers were not the most grateful people. (laughs) So, uh, uh, we, we kind of got out of that business and, and kept working with each other on this. Do you feel that you've always had an entrepreneurial streak? Were you the kid selling lemonade on the corner at the age of five? Well, not quite that, but I did get uh, sent to the principal's office a couple of times because I was um, trading Yu-Gi-Oh cards a little bit too much. Yeah. And like the teacher, you do it like you do it and he's making pretty good money because like you could go and you could talk up a card and like some people, you could be like, the you could clear the market for them. And like if people kind of knew me as the person that like, you could come to do to do that. Um, and I was making good money. And then the teacher said it, uh, shut it down. Cause they didn't really like, this is like third grade too. Yeah, um, wow. but the teacher shut it down cause they didn't like that. Some people had hurt feelings. So then it turned to a yeah. black market. And then I sent, I got sent to the principal's office. So, um, uh, yeah, we're, we're doing things a little more above board now. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, what, what do you think is the thing that, that, you're most motivated by in all of this. Are you more motivated by social change, by personal freedom, financial freedom? Like what's your number one motivator in starting this? I think I just really care about the housing crisis. Like I'm just, I really hate inefficiency and housing is like probably the most inefficient part of society right now. Uh, so the, there've been a couple of different like studies that have said, if you relax zoning restrictions in San Francisco, San Jose and New York city, um, U.S. GDP would be 4% higher, hmm. which if you look at like the numbers is basic and like the per capita incomes, that's basically an extra like 3000 plus dollars in every single American's pocket every single year. Wow. And, and you so believe like, that to be true. This isn't something, this isn't a line that's being sold to us by <laughs> the powers that be. You, you believe that. So I'm, I'm like a computer scientist and statistician yeah. by training. Right. And like, I, I look at the data and like, yeah. these are all peer reviewed, um, yeah. peer reviewed publications and like, yeah, yeah the, the data sound. And that's, uh, I think that study came out in like 2012 and it hasn't gotten better in the last nine years or no. 10 years. So. No, that's so true. And all right. So what, what made you decide that that was the right, so you got interested in this project and you drop out of school. Why, um, why not finish school and then start? You just couldn't wait or what was the thought? that led you to do it at that moment? Yeah, I think so. It was a little bit of both. Um, the opportunity with like the the market for backyard homes growing something like 300% every single year, being super nascent and like divided, um, like 
we just have the we have the the thesis and it's starting to bear true that like this market's going to get consolidated into a few like larger players that are able to actually benefit from those returns to scale. And we wanted to be part of that. Um, on the practical side too, my co-founder is a year older than me. So he was going to graduate school and like, I really wanted to work with my co-founder. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was, I was willing to, to go and to, to leave school to do that. So that's so cool. Did it feel like a tremendous risk at the time or did it feel like this is just what I have to do? Um, so it was a little bit of both. It, it, like, it certainly felt risky compared to what my peers were doing. Like CMU, I think is a relatively conservative school, like produces really good engineers, but like, it's very common for people to just go work for like a Google or an Apple or a Microsoft, uh, rather than like starting things. Um, at the same time, like in the sort of spirit of uh, entrepreneurialism, like my dad left his job at a big bank when I think I was like six years old to start an e-commerce business. Uh, when my mother wasn't working <laughs> and that's, he's still doing that today, but he bootstrapped that business and has continued to bootstrap it. And like relative to him, for me to leave school when I'm young and don't actually have any dependents and can probably just go back to school after a couple of years, if this thing doesn't work out, like I didn't think I was taking like that much risk. Oh, nice. And you had that model, your parents uh, instilled entrepreneurial ideas in your head. Yeah, that's, definitely. That's cool. So you kind of knew, like, okay, this is something that I can do. That's that's awesome. Um, how long was it from the time that you did that till you started feeling like you were gaining some traction? Um, progress like can be measured in a few different ways. So like you get the the short term like kind of high that comes with like a successful fundraise, um, but it's not actually very real in a lot of senses. Uh, so I, I think like the thing that really motivates me today is like actual sales and like customers that are willing to pay us like several hundred thousand dollars to, to build one of these things for them. And to hear their stories of like how this is going to change their life and how like um, an extra thousand dollars in their pocket every single month uh, is really going to make a difference. Uh, so that's really started to click maybe in the last year where like sales have really increased and like we're actually starting to deliver and like see those customers and be able to like understand like what a difference this is making. Yeah, and and what what have you been hearing? What's the word on the street from happy customers? Yeah, so I, I think like we have a few different groups of of customers that um, we usually work with. So the first one are um, the first two are folks that have been in their home for like a long time. Uh, we have one customer who was, like I think grew up in his house and is now um, almost eighty years old. Uh, but like as uh, as they've kind of worked and uh, like maybe retired, like they're on kind of a fixed income while the cost of living is increasing faster than that fixed income. So that this produces like some financial stress uh, yeah. and it starts to displace people at some point. If you can't afford to, to live in the neighborhood you grew up in, you need to find somewhere else to live. And that's just really sad. Yeah. Um, horribly sad. So like, I, I think it's, it's taken a, a burden off a, a lot of people like that because they understand that like, um, my rent is probably going to increase a lot with the cost of living. And it's something I'm going to be able to like have every single month uh, for the rest of my life. And I don't need to think about like selling my house or using like a reverse mortgage, which means my kids won't get my house or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those people either like they'll rent out the, um, the new house, uh, which is what probably most people do, but some people actually go and they'll, um, they'll move into the house in their backyard. Uh, so they do kind of like have a little bit of a change, but they're able to like, remain neighbors with all the people they've been neighbors with for the the past decades. Um, And like uh, from a financial perspective, they're able to do a little bit better if they can 
like kind of downsized in place. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's such an interesting thing. And that's definitely the case. Cause I just moved to a neighborhood where that is, I lived in an apartment for most of my working life and I just moved to a freestanding house in a neighborhood. Um, but you've seen the way things have changed. You know, what was one starter homes have now become unobtainable, you know, like 60 years ago, these homes were all first time home buyer. They were cheap. They were affordable. And now it's, yeah. it's, it's absolutely unattainable for most people. And, um, mm -hmm. Even in the last seven years, the price of a one bedroom here has gone up dramatically. Like I think, it, you know, let's say it was a thousand dollars a month seven, eight years ago. Now you wouldn't find mm -hmm. one for under seventeen hundred or eighteen hundred. It's just stupid. So mm -hmm. it's a, it's it's a big deal. Yeah. Um, what what would you say are some of the uh, what what are some of the insights that you learned from doing Y Combinator or an accelerator of any kind? I think the the classic advice is just always to move faster uh, and that things that kind of look like a roadblock, you can often, rather than just driving straight into, you can like look for like a clever way to go around. Hmm. Uh, so that, that might be everything from like, um, like talking to customers and trying to like kind of get sales uh, to just like trying to maybe reach out to like a big company. Uh, so just like, feeling more bold and biased towards action, I think is super important and it's something I've gotten a lot better about. Uh, and I, I think that's probably the, the value of those programs in a lot of ways, because they, they put you on some deadlines uh, where like you need to have something by some dates. So what's an example of the kind of deadline that they'd give you? Uh, so with YC, uh, there were a few, so there was like a prototype day where you had to go in front of like all the other companies in the batch only like a month into the program and like share what you were working on. So you have a lot of peer pressure from that one. Uh, and then the other big one was for demo day where you're going to go on stage. Uh, we have the last in-person batch that YC did. But oh, uh, nice. at that point, like they hosted this event at like one of the piers in San Francisco and you, you went up on a big stage for, for two minutes and you gave your pitch to like an audience of 500 or a thousand people. Uh, so not, not looking dumb in front of a bunch of uh, interesting, important people is pretty valuable. People with a lot of money who can decide your fate, right? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. Are, would you consider yourself an introvert or extrovert by nature? I'm probably a little bit more in the middle. It really depends on like um, the week and sometimes who like I'm talking to. Uh, so like I definitely like to like focus on on things and build. Like I'm I'm an engineer by training, and like there's a reason for that. Right. Uh, but I think like building a company and, and selling your product and other things like that really brings out like my extroverted side. And I, I certainly enjoy that too. That's very cool. And, you know, geeking out a little bit, I, I haven't spent a long time since I've looked at YC, but I, I looked at their website and they have like the hacker news, right? There's various startup news components of it, which is always fascinating. But if I'm not mistaken, they prefer to take on candidates who have a co-founder. They don't like solo entrepreneurs. If I'm, I might be remembering that incorrect. Um, for a variety of reasons, I think, but what has it been? Do you believe in the power of having a co-founder versus doing it yourself when somebody has an idea or a mission? Uh, so I think it depends a lot on the, on the person. I think in general, like, it's nice to have like someone that you can like be up against the world with it. Right. Like that's, that's really valuable, right? Like you can kind of, you help each other out. Some, you have like, ideally some some complementary skills uh and you just have someone to like be on the entire journey with in a way that like 
you don't necessarily can't necessarily get from like your friends or significant others or others like that. Whereas like, I know Brian and I are like equal partners in this business. So like if, if we're upset about something, we can go to each other, um, which certainly helps like manage employees and expectations and investors and things like that. Uh, so I, I think it's like fairly important. Um, personally, I think I, I'm probably a little better off with a co-founder, um, but like my dad is a solo founder and he seems like he, he does just fine. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's because they, I, yeah, I remember reading it once, but yeah, they, the only counter example was like Dropbox was founded, I think by a solo guy who just coded Dropbox by himself. Well, I, I think Drew, he, um, he went and he created Dropbox interviewed for OIC and they told him you need a co-founder in order. They to told him program. he needed one. Oh, really? They made him do it. Yeah, so, I, knew they, I thought they cared. I think he might've, I think he might've come back with somebody Oh, I think that was back in 2010, though. And yeah. I, I have like I have plenty of friends that um, have done YC that are solo founders. So I, I think it's not not that rigid at this point. But like, I, I think it definitely makes it more real when like you're both really like invested into the into the project. At the same time, though, like I think one of the things having done this for a couple of years and seeing some some friends' companies kind of explode is like co-founder disputes are probably the number one things that kill companies. So right, it's probably a lot like a good say. relationship. You're like you watch the Beatles documentary or whatever, and you know anytime people build something together, then there's always it's it's hard to imagine. It's like a marriage, right? It's it's almost literally yeah. like a marriage, and you pray that the marriage works out, and that you're always happy with your share, and that you always agree. And we see that. I think it, it appears to be rare. Do you feel? Do you have total confidence? I know that's been a bit of a personal question, but <laughs> you, you feel good about the choices that you made um yeah brian and i had built businesses before which i actually like is probably advice that i would give to people when they're thinking about starting a company we're like i don't know if you can if you can make it more of a gradient and less of a binary where you do like progressively larger projects with someone like you get like kind of into the relationship and you understand like how the other person works and like Um, if you're kind of easing into it, there's much more of like an easy off ramp. If you decide like, it's not necessarily working. Whereas like, if you just kind of like got hitched with someone, like your success rate is probably going to reflect like a marriage at first sight compared to a marriage after many years of dating. That is very good advice. Well, one thing that you have that I think not a lot of people have is you have first hand insight into the difference between bootstrapping something because of your dad and doing something and funded. Like, what are some of the differences that you've noticed between the path that your dad took as a solopreneur building an e-commerce website versus going your way, the funded fast growth startup? Well, so I I actually have been a solopreneur as well. Where okay. like I have my I, I basically built an e-commerce company to like pay for school. Cool. Uh where like I got really good at selling textbooks and like uh, like electronic accessories and all sorts of other things like that on, on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it like you go faster and I think you can go further with a co-founder, like in general. So like my business in many ways, like kind of existed for me to like pay for school. Mm-hmm. And like, I maybe didn't have like many larger aspirations than that. Like it was kind of cool to like, like pay the bills and stuff like that, but I wasn't as passionate about it. And um, I also like, I think I just get stuck in like little ruts or it's like, Oh, I definitely know I need to do this, but like, I don't necessarily have like um, the accountability systems built up as like a 19 or 20 year old to actually like exercise on these. 
Um, I think the single thing my dad is probably best at, and he's probably still better at this than me is, is accountability. Uh, he was in the Navy for like 10 years. Uh, and he's just like, he's really great at just work, like waking up the exact same time every single day, um, going to the gym, uh, going to work for eight hours and coming home. And he's, he's like, he just does that day after day after day. And that, that really compounds. So I think, um, especially for young founders or, or for at least me, the accountability factor is, is pretty big too. Yeah, that's such a good point because a lot of people, especially during the pandemic, you know, I've been working remotely with the computer for my entire professional life. Um, so at least 10 years, I don't know. Um, but in the days, you know, when you're working remotely from home, a lot of people would always just say, oh, you're so lucky. This is such a great thing. Like, I wish now everybody's remote because of the pandemic. But before people would say, I wish I didn't have to go to an office or this or that. But it's that accountability thing. When you're responsible by yourself, you have to be the one. You have to say, I'm going to get up at 7 a.m. when nobody else is going to tell you to mm-hmm. do that. Nobody's going to get mad at you if you don't. Nobody's going to yell at you. You have to get up. And, and building those habits, I think a lot of people are discovering now how hard it is to do that, how hard it is to self-motivate and not just watch Netflix all day or Game of Thrones for the 80th time, right? Mm-hmm. Do you feel that, uh, have you always had a self-motivation or was it? I think I've always been pretty driven, but like you, you definitely need, like, I think you, you gotta, you gotta kick yourself once in a while. And I, I think I'm really good at like creating systems. So I try to build systems for myself to kind of like automatically like progress through things. Sure. Uh, so when I'm in San Francisco, um, like we, we live in like a very tall, like thin building so like my room's on kind of a the bottom floor and like mm-hmm. I don't bring my computer and I don't bring my laptop or I don't bring my computer I don't bring my my cell phone into my bedroom uh, that's like my personal space but I, I put it all on my desk and I have a desk and I have monitors and whenever I do work I sit at my desk and that's the only place I do work yeah. uh, so like I'm, I'm able to kind of hardwire myself to like oh if I can get to my desk then it's that that it, it's all over like I'm gonna work a lot yeah uh, and like when I leave my desk I'm done uh, and that's what kind of like helped me from going crazy during the pandemic. And now like I'll go to our factory uh, most days and actually work and like walk the line and talk to the guys and stuff like that. And I have a, so cool. I have a desk there. Um, but I, I think just having that sort of like separation of spaces has been really important for me to just stay motivated. That's very smart. So what does a typical day look like for you? Yeah. So um, I'm typically at our factory from like 930 to 530. Uh, I might wake up at call like 7.30. Uh, I think that's been a really big unlock for me that I've really only gotten through the pandemic where like, you just wake up like a little bit early and you have the first hour to like kind of do whatever you need to do. Sometimes sometimes I'll read a book. Uh, sometimes I'll get like started on work a little early if there's some important emails to send, um, make a little bit of breakfast and then head to the factory. Uh, it's only about 15 minutes from where I stay in San Francisco. Uh, cool. So we just go across the Bay Bridge uh, into Oakland um, our factory team typically gets there around nine. So they're starting to get set up for the day. They get all their tools out. Um, so I'll typically walk around the factory a little bit, say hi to all the guys, like understand what they're working on. Um, I'm always looking to like, for what type of things I can make more efficient. So I studied like computer science, but I, I think the thing that led me to do that was I just really hate inefficiency. Like I said before, mm-hmm. uh, so the, um, when, when I'm walking the line, I'm always looking to see like what we can do to like maybe improve a process. Like, oh, if we use like bigger nails on this, we could use fewer of them, which mm-hmm. means that you would have to pick up the nail gun less. Uh, so it's everything from that to like a big thing of like, like, why, why are you doing this this way? Yeah. Um, like, it seems like 
if we attach this material horizontally instead of vertically, we could save a lot of time too. Or like, um, uh, we shouldn't probably saw something on the ground. We should put it up on like a table. Yeah. Uh, so lots of little things like that. Um, I generally am spending most of our time, like actually on the factory team thinking about how to make it more efficient, but I'm also starting to spend a lot of time on like business processes as we've crossed, um, 20 or 25 people now. Uh, so just making sure things are like really robust. Uh, so through the, the holidays, we actually had a little bit of like, a um, like a, a dip in the number of people that were like joining the team uh, on the factory side, I think probably because of, we think because of the holidays, but I went and I built a lot of processes around like, oh, like our applicants come into Indeed. And then I connected this like no code service called Zapier to like mm-hmm. bring the applicants into our like Airtable database. Uh, and then I hired someone uh, over in the Philippines whose job it is to like review that whole like uh, that database every single day. And then we have like a process where like a candidate enters the funnel, our factory team kind of reviews the candidate to determine like, oh, do we want to like sort of learn more about this person or not? Do we want to maybe have them come like visit the factory for like a trial day so we can kind of see their carpentry skills because it's hard to gauge that over a Zoom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then like we're able to sort of drop them to this process, send out some automatic emails. And then if they don't reply to those emails, the, the person offshore can actually go and like pick up the phone and, and call those people to give them like an impromptu interview and like screen them to make sure they're, uh, they kind of fit all the requirements for the job. Uh, so that's kind of solved one of the problems yeah. that we've had recently, but I'll, sure. I was spending like half of my day working on uh, problems like that. And there's, there's 10 other things like that, that are just kind of little like monotonous things about like the physical world uh, that we're doing a really good job, just automating and building systems around. So it's a, a lot easier. So we're trying to operate like a technology company. Right. How many employees do you have at the moment? Uh, we have about 20 in the factory and then we have um, uh, five over in the Philippines. That's a good bit. So it's pretty rapid mm-hmm. growth. Nice. Um, yeah. That's, that's such an interesting thing. And you mentioned also automation. So what, what role is automation going to play going forward? Yeah, so automation is super important in the factory. Um, so we're kind of on like, if we have like five steps to building a hundred houses a year, we're probably in like step three. So step one is like set up the factory. Step two is like staff the factory and get it running pretty efficiently. And, and step three is starting to think about like, which of these tasks could be like, could we add robots or other technology to actually assist us in? Uh, and we're doing this like first on like the software side, we're like hiring, right? I could have someone whose full-time job it would be to screen resumes, or I can like build auto, like automatic email responders and like screen candidates based on their qualifications. Uh, and that that goes that helps us go a lot faster there. Uh, we're also starting to do it in the factory where we have um, some robots that like automatically paint our floor panels. And pretty soon we'll have things that like attach the insulation to the walls. Uh, and really are able to like help make the uh, the team in the factory be a lot more effective. That's so cool. I love all of that. So you're like right in the heart of it. Do you have the ambition of, is it your goal to sell this company in a few years or is this something that you can see yourself doing for a long time? I really like what I'm doing uh, right now. Uh, I'm not I'm not quite sure that we would sell. I, I think it's just a like, it's a really meaningful and exciting uh, thing to be working on. Uh, and I, I don't know if there'd be much else that I'd be happier doing. Right. So, um, yeah, I like doing this. Yeah, no, it's, it's hard to imagine something. It's, it's such a fundamental need, especially right now and especially in this state. So it seems like you're doing the right thing. Um, what, what does winning look like to you? What would everything, all of your dreams come true? What does that look like? Um, 
shipping, like shipping just a ridiculous number of houses, like maybe like 10,000 a year 10, or something like that. Okay. So you'd have to build like 30 houses every single day. Uh, and if we could build a house in, so a, a number I think a lot about our factory is like the people hours required to build a house. Right. Cause if you can build it in very few people hours, uh, the business just gets to be like really good. Right. Where um you go and like, you pay for you pay your your vendors for materials and they probably give you like 30 day terms for that. And then your customer pays you when the house is built. So if you can build the house faster than it you're required to pay the vendor in, um, like the thing prints money. Yeah. Whereas like, if you can't, uh, if it takes longer to build the house, than the vendor requires payment in, you require a lot of like upfront capital. So like in my mind, like a, a ginormous unlock for us is when we can build a house faster than the vendor requires payment. Right, because then we can just kind of infinitely scale on our customers on right. on our customers paying us for the houses. That's very cool. Um, have these ideas come from you? Like, to what degree are you getting these ideas? Do you have a mentor figure? Um, do you believe that having mentors is important? Yeah, I have a, I have a few mentor figures for like uh, like different parts of my life. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I, I just have one, but mm-hmm. I, I definitely constantly relying on. Uh, both people and just a lot of like books um, yeah. to do things where uh, like specifically on the construction side, like we're trying to do this weird thing where we take construction when we make it super, like uh, super techie. And like a few people have tried to do this um, going back like 40 or 50 years, but not at the same level of like actual technology, but the auto industry has done a really great job adding lots of technology. Yeah. Uh, so in many ways, like my job is to know a lot about the auto industry and to know a lot about the construction industry and like figure out how to smush them together and then add in like the computer science and statistics background that I have uh, so at cool. the same time. Do you um, have a favorite book for business? I mean, not construction, since I doubt many of our <laughs> listeners are involved in construction specifically. Yeah, but the, the house building <laughs> book is wonderful. Yeah, I was like, uh, okay, if you want to build it, mean, okay, fine. But if that's what comes to mind, then go for it. But yeah, what's 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 our top two books that you think really changed your life or helped you as an entrepreneur? Yeah. Um, hmm. So I, I read really constantly. I just read, I, I generally like really like sci-fi uh, just because I, ah. I think like, I like love the idea of like dreaming about kind of what the future is like. And I just yeah. read um, uh, Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson. Okay. It's a book where like the moon kind of gets, the moon gets blown up and then lots of things happen. Interesting. I feel like I've heard of this. I think it's been doing the round, but that's, that's your favorite book at the moment. That's the one I just finished and really enjoyed. Okay. Yeah. All right. And I'm, I'm starting to read more, uh, more Neil Stevenson. So cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way. And I think probably a lot of founders, certainly in your area, a lot of people are like that, but I hate things about the past. Like I don't like Lord of the Rings. I don't like all of, uh, uh, what's that show? Uh, Game of Thrones, you know, I, like these mythical mm-hmm. dragon paths where people are still killing yeah. and beheading each other. Like I've never seen the mm-hmm. thrill. It's like, oh, we have enough magic, but not enough magic to stop people from brutally murdering each other. Like, okay, cool. Yeah. I've always liked the future, <laughs> you know, like the fifth element, Blade Runner, yeah. all of that stuff. Like thinking about, like you said, what the world could be, you know, what, what would be nice if we all came together and even going as far back as, you know, in the old days, like I always thought that Star Trek, even though I didn't really love it, I thought it was great in that it showed an example of a society that just functioned. You know, people who are just cordial to each other, they're intelligent, they make rational decisions, (laughs) they have a Mm -hmm. sense of the greater good. I love reading stories because that's like what's so sorely missing from our world right now. A lot of people are just 
depressed and they're fighting and they're missing the big picture on almost everything daily. And it sounds to me like you're focused on what really matters most. Yeah, put a target out there and, and reach towards it. That's At the so same cool. time, I I do like historical stuff. Um, more like histories of businesses that are really operationally complex too. Yeah. So like I'm I'm kind of obsessive about the airline industry Ooh. because I, I think it's like probably like the hardest business out there to run. Because you yeah. you go and you like you buy this hundred million dollar plane and one, you have to like, you have to hire some pilots that are highly skilled and some flight attendants, which are highly skilled. And then you have to like, like navigate this whole like legal landscape of like, I can, I need to have like the right to take off from this airport and land at this other airport. And like, how do you even pick which airport to take off and land from? And how much should you sell a ticket for? Like, it, it's really ridiculously complicated. And there's this book I read called Hard Landing, which is about the deregulation of the airline industry, which I, I thought really like, summarized a lot of things well um but you have like all this interesting like technology or like if we build a more efficient plane that can fly fewer people further we can start fly like uh all these weird like kind of skinny routes that um make it so you don't have to have a connection right Uh, but then it also has all these labor issues where like uh eastern airlines for example uh got shut down because like there were just these ginormous like labor issues where like people weren't able to like kind of work things out and it, it killed this like like 60 or 70 year old brand and then at the same time you also have like all this geopolitics stuff where like uh these nation states try to get involved and like they want to improve their like standing in the world uh say with a, a company like emirates airlines mm-hmm. where the government just throws money at things and like wants the airline to exist mm-hmm. so um i like that industry a lot so I, I read a lot of things about that too very nice very nice um I know with a little bit of technical difficulties at the beginning, maybe, maybe not, but we're approaching the end of our hour, so I don't. I do want to be respectful of your time. We'll see what happens with the other footage. Uh, uh, what is the most counterintuitive piece of advice or unusual thing that you've accumulated along the way? Um, it's probably the the bit about like startups being um, much more of a gradient than a binary. Uh, so the idea that like, I think a lot of like, especially young people kind of look at companies and like, I want to start a, a startup and I want to do that like immediately. Right. Uh, and like, I want to go from like having nothing to having a startup and one day that's just going to happen. And I don't think that's the way it works um, for most people, even if people do like go from nothing to something really fast. Uh, I think it's always just like a, like an easing into it and like understanding like, oh, is this something I want to be doing? Are these the people I want to be working with? And just like, continuing to like kind of scale it up. Um, and I, I think that like yeah. is something that people can learn from bootstrapping where that's just the natural thing that happens or like you make a little money and you reinvest it and you make a little money and it's right. kind of that nice smooth curve mm-hmm. uh, with, whereas with like VC, it's like uh, we have nothing, a bunch of money shows up. We, we have like some curve, a bunch of money shows up and it's a lot more um, jagged. Uh, so I think a lot of people, especially with the early days could, um, could use more of the the smooth curve, right? So that they get that experience of building something and putting in the work and all of that. And just to, like if you take VC money, like I I think there's an expectation um, implicitly from the VCs that like you're gonna go and like deliver like a, a ginormous return, uh, and like you're gonna get pushed to to move faster and and things like that. Uh, and if your company's successful, you're gonna be doing it for a decade. Mm-hmm. And that's probably not something you should get into lightly. 
So. Yeah, right. Especially if you want to have this thing called a, a family or this other thing called a life outside of work. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These two things that can be hard. Um, well, I really, yeah, I do appreciate you, you sitting with me. Um, last piece is, uh, you know, somebody out there, a young person or somebody who has an idea and they're not sure to act on it. What advice do you have for somebody who might want to follow in your footsteps or has an idea of a mission that they want to solve and they're not sure how to approach it? Yeah, I, I think one of the most important things you can do is um, like try to sell the thing and see if someone buys it, even if like the thing doesn't exist yet, or like you maybe like approach people as if the product exists or um, you're able to go and like uh, like ask people if it's something that'd be useful and like the closest, as close as possible as you can get to like receiving money. And then like, if it, if you don't actually have the thing and you can't deliver on it, just refund the people's money. But like, it gives you a really good understanding of like, this is something people want or people don't want. Mm -hmm. And like when people actually like they vote with their dollar, it's really powerful. So I would like try to figure out like what's the fastest possible way you can try and check if someone will vote with their dollar. Very cool. I absolutely love that. Um, I want to give you the floor for the, to wrap this up here. Uh, what, where can people support what you're doing? Find what you're doing, anything you want to promote or say this uh, little bit is yours. Um, yeah, sure. So if you have a backyard in the San Francisco Bay Area, we'd love to help you <laughs> make some extra money. Uh, we will be in Los Angeles soon, um, probably by, depending on when you listen to this right now, it's the start of 2022, maybe the middle or end of 2022, we'll be in LA. Um, our website is just rentthebackyard.com. Our Instagram is underscore rentthebackyard, where we have lots more cool pictures, um, in addition to the ones you've already seen on this podcast. Uh, and uh, yeah. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter is S-Q-B-U-R-L, um, and you can find me there too. So Sounds if good. you also want to email me, my email is just my first and last name at, at thebackyard.com. Very cool. Well, thank you. And I, I look forward to seeing these in LA when you're here. Drop me a line. I'd love to come check it out or see a demo unit. Oh, or definitely. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, we should definitely get a coffee or whatever when, uh, when you're in town. Um, but yeah, yeah th- thanks for taking the time. Sorry that we had some weird Zoom hiccups in the beginning. But uh, uh, I suppose, yeah, I guess we'll just wrap the episode up here. So with that, the official podcast is over. Uh-huh.